in our Old Testament reading this morning comes from Exodus. Exodus 20, um, verses 1 through 17. You may find this on your, in your pew Bible on page, what page is it on? On page 66 in the Old Testament section. You may recall throughout this Lenten journey, we are spending some time in the book of Exodus, um, walking through the wilderness and journeying through the wilderness with the Israelites as we journey um, ourselves in this Lenten season on the way to the cross and to, to the empty tomb eventually. Um, in, in, in Exodus, you may recall, the Israelites are being freed uh, from their captivity and slavery. The first reading we read a couple of weeks ago was the day that, G, that God said, remember this day. This day, God said. This is where it begins. Remember this day. And we related that to the, remember the cross. Remember this day and that time. Remember this day. Last week, we looked at, the, as they're walking through the wilderness, the Israelites said, but how are we going to eat? We had food when we were in captivity. And also, we were in Elam, and Elam was this beautiful place that gave us food and everything else. And now we're, we're out here in this wilderness, and we don't have anything to food, for eat. And God said, here, I'll provide you manna. And manna, we talked about said, this. The word manna means, what is it? And so every day, they'd wake up, and they'd say, what is it today, God, that you're asking us? What is it today? And now, as they travel on and continue to build this relationship with God, um, now God gives them what we call the Ten Commandments. I invite you now to listen to God's Word. Again, it comes from Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on earth beneath, or that is in water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the inequity of their parents to third and fourth generations, to those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of, my, of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock or alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Honor your father and your mother, that, you, that your days may be long in the land of the Lord that your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female slave, ox, donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Friends, this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. On January 1st, 1943, 
The American uh, music legend Woody Guthrie jotted a list of 33 New Year's resolutions adorned by doodles. It's an eclectic list. Uh, work more and better. Work by schedule. Uh, drink very scant, if any. Write a song a day. Uh, wear clean clothes. Look good. And down the list it goes. Uh, learn people better. Don't get lonesome. Keep hoping machine running. Dream good. Uh, make up your mind. Wake up and fight. His may be an unusual list. But most people, most churches even, make resolutions on a regular basis. If only, we say, if only we get the list right. Adopt the appropriate strategy, we think. Everything will fit together. If only we get the perfect ministry to-do list, then scores of new people will come. Those who have been left out will return in droves. Our budgets will double. Spirit will rise, we say. All the church has to do is work on a really good list of resolutions. But we all know how successful New Year's resolutions are, don't we? According to a survey, only 8% of us keep our New Year's resolution on going to the gym beyond Groundhog's Day. The shame that comes from this is real. David Brooks has written that in our shame culture, we know we are good or bad by what our community says about us. As churches are facing challenges and struggles with decline and self-doubts, what our culture thinks of us has become more urgent. In our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Snapchat world, and the desire to be praised by the community is intense. People dread being excelled or, or shamed for the lack of vitality. Moral life, Brooks writes, is not built on a continuum of, of right or wrong. It's built on a continuum of inclusion and exclusion. The modern shame culture allegedly values inclusion and tolerance that can be strangely unmerciful to those who do not fit in. Over the past couple of years, our teenage children, especially our teenage girls, have been the target of this culture. In a recent CDC's report, it was found that nearly 60% of our teenage girls have a persistent sense of sadness or hopelessness. This number has been steadily rising, doubling, in fact, over the last 10 years. There are many studies uh, that suggest why the increase. Some psychologists and some readers point to social media, suggesting the beginning of social media about 10 years ago. And a teenage children's mental health is not a coincidence whatsoever. Now, we're not going to solve the social media concerns this morning in a 15-minute sermon. And like many things in life, there are scores of opinions about social media, uh, all the benefits and all the harms. The concern for many is that if we just say, that's it, no more social media for our teenager, then the problem is not solved because for many youth, their entire friend group is on social media, creating maybe more isolation 
creating more anxiety. Being in community is complicated. Hardly is ever done in a one-dimensional as we think. In our society, there's experience in the constant rise of anxiety, loneliness, and depression, not only with our teenagers, but across all ages. It's tempting to simplify these Ten Commandments in an absolute moralism of lists of do's and don'ts. To do this not only misrepresents Scripture, but misrepresents the tone and the character of faith, the relationship between the one who commands and those who are commanded. And what is that relationship between the one who commands and the ones who are commanded? This is revealed at the very beginning of the commandments. When God says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I I met your deepest yearning, and I have exceeded it by giving you the promise of a land to settle in. What God is saying to us, I have been with you in the darkness, listened to you in your despair, let you out of death, dispersed your enemies, and guided you with my own hand. I have set you free. I am the Lord your God. Is in these words, written at the very beginning of the Ten Commandments, that not only set the stage for the commandments, but reveal to us that relationship to us that God desires, and a relationship that God promises. It's these words and God's actions that move the Ten Commandments from a list of do's and don'ts to a list that reminds us of our identity. Our relationship is that of a child. We are children of God, a God that keeps coming in tragedy, in joy, and in normal times. A God that will not give up on us. A God's desire, God's only desire, is for us to know this. There's a choir in the Atlanta area that has a wonderful but unusual custom. Whenever a member of a congregation is admitted into hospice and is facing the last days of their life, the choir will go into the hospice and sing to them this sing this great anthems of the faith. This singing is a comfort. Yes, it is. Uh, but it's more than that. It's a confession of faith that we are surrounded in life and in death by the gospel story, that we do not bear the burden of making our own lives complete. We can be content, even comforted in our incompleteness, because the completion that we desire in life has been provided to us as a gift from God, the God who was there at the very beginning, the God who will be there at the very end. It's in the, ten, in the, it's the very end of the Ten Commandments. That Tenth Commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female slave, or ox, donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. That Tenth Commandment links us back to the very beginning of God's statement and brings all the other commandments there together. The late Rene Giraud, who wrote and taught psychology, sociology, literal 
literary theory, philosophy, and theology, says that if we obey this tenth commandment, we would not even need all the other thou shalt nots. The Torah was called by many the titan of 20th century thought. Born in France, he spent most of his life in the United States, died in 2015. He was an atheist, but converted to Christianity as an adult. In teaching at various universities, Gerard spent his academic career in developing the theory of human conflict. In the great root cause of human conflict, Gerard turned to the 10th commandment. Gerard said this commandment uncovers the root of human sin. His logic? Humans are forever desiring the wrong thing. You do not steal, Gerard observed. Unless you desire someone else's stuff. You do not commit adultery. Unless you desire someone else's mate. You do not murder. Unless you desire power. Or have revenge. Or money overwhelms your respect for life. Our lives, Gerard argues, resolves around desire. We desire status, power, fame. We daydream about perfect bodies, eternal youth, better jewelry. We lust after more authority, that corner office, better clothing, fancier houses, bigger banks accounts, vacations in the sun. According to Rod, the most insidious thing about the desires that people are pursuing their entire lives long is that most of our desires are not our own. From an early childhood, he argues, humans learn to copy each other's desires. Then throughout life, we are constantly being influenced into that being our desire, we think. The world wants us to develop new desires. Our economy is based on us needing new desires. And so we are like sponges soaking up all of these desires. What everyone says else says that we should desire. With the results being that we desire something other than ourselves. This Ten Commandment is trying to break this cycle. It's suggesting that the world is setting us up for this massive trap. Coveting suggests we're just one step away from, all, from having all we need to fulfill our lives, from feeling happy, from feeling secure, from finding that place in the world. If only, we say, if only we have five more thousand dollars in the bank. If only I had an extra bedroom. If only I lived in a big town. If only I lived in a small town. If only I had friends. If only I had a spouse. If only I could make the grades and get the scores, get on the right team, and get into the right college, have this career, and live in this town. I will be set if only my child can have all those things, then they'll be set, we say. It's not a bad thing to desire a thing. It can be fun to desire, to, to dream about a new car, a vacation, or a loving mate. Scott Bud Johnson has also done a lot of research This argues that we can desire things for ourselves, loved ones, a society that is good, bread each day, shelter over our heads, trustworthy friends. And I think most of that we want is good. 
to keep our resolutions. But we all know what happens to our resolutions. It's when we believe that our desires will set us free, solve our problems, make us happy. That's when desires get dangerous. And right now, our youth are telling us that life is dangerous. They're suggesting that the world that we have created, a world that lives on desires, is not working for them. 60% are saying they are unhappy with our desires. But the hope, the hope probably lies that they are telling us this. Because to fix ourselves, we have to first look internally to see what is upsetting us. If we don't believe our youth, all we have to do is turn on the news to see how the desires of one country's leaders for another country's lands can disrupt the world, cost billions of dollars, and kill hundreds of thousands of lives. I think this is why God says, I am a jealous God. It's not because God needs our love, but because God's only desire is for our love, so that through God's love that we will know that we are free. And God has been coming to us over and over and over again to tell us that you are free that you don't have to desire all of this stuff, starting with Adam and Eve as they reach for that apple in the garden to Abraham and Sarah to Moses and the Israelites in Egypt. God comes to us in the wilderness. And through the judges and the wisdoms and the prophets, God comes to us in Jesus Christ. Even though we betray God at seen on that cross, God keeps coming and coming and coming and telling us, you are free. Not because we've earned it. Not because we deserved it. Not because we followed a bunch of rules. But because I love you. God says, you are free. Free to live alternatively than the desires of this world wants you to live by. Free to live into the very thing that you desire the most. To be the one I created you to be. People who love God and love each other. These are not resolutions for us to fail at through life so God can sit up there and judge us as we die. The Ten Commandments are I love you statements. Because I love you, I have freed you, God says. Therefore, have no other gods before me. You don't need to. You're free. You're free from having to lug around all those idols. You're free from whispers and hucksters. You're free from empty promises of pretenders. You, my beloved, 
are free. Do not covet. You're free. You're free from worrying about your status of your possessions. You're free from worrying if you're measured up to your neighbors. You're free to live radically a different way. You shall not kill because you're free. You're free, my child, from a culture of violence, from seeing human aggressions as solutions, as a remedy, as anything other than a tragic cycle. You're free. Do not bear false witnesses. You're free. You're free to tell the truth. And you're freed from your unhealthy egos. You're freed from narcissist deception that reality confronts your desires. You are free from lying, from telling yourself it'll be okay to sling falsehoods when out around when they're hurt or they're sad or just plain mad. You're free. Honor the Sabbath. You're free. You're free from labor that gets you nowhere, from turning out never-ending stacks of bricks under the graves of the overseers. You're free to rest. You're free to think. You're free to sing. You're free to pray. You're free to be the person I created you to be. My child with whom I am well pleased, who I've named beloved. Don't you see? You are free. Great God Almighty. You're already free. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.